I am so proud to be working with Kills to bring you this season of Rain with Josh Smith. I created Rain to empower communities everywhere and start important conversations about equality, and Kills have been doing exactly that for more than 170 years. Not only do Kills make you feel like your best self with their award-winning apothecary skincare products, but they also support local communities through charity partnerships, literally changing lives. And in the spirit of feeling like our best selves, Kills have just added a new cream formulation of their best-selling midnight recovery oil. And trust me when I say you need this in your life. Say hello to the Midnight Recovery Omega Rich Cloud Cream, which will not only help your skin look plumped, nourished, and radiant, it will also empower you to feel fabulous and take on absolutely anything. It's available now at your nearest Kill store or on kills.co.uk. Hey, I'm Josh Smith and welcome to Rain. And I'm so glad you're here, babes. This podcast is all about opening up having important conversations and celebrating successes, as well as overcoming obstacles to reign over our own lives. I love to chat to people and I always find things in these conversations to take away and use in my own life. So I really hope you'll find the same as well. Welcome to Rain. In today's episode, we're joined by quadruple threat, Nicole Leckie, who not only stars in the BBC hit show Mood, she also wrote the script, wrote the songs, and sings them as well. She's truly putting us all to shame with that talent. Mood is a show that explores OnlyFans culture through the main character, singer Sasha Clayton, who's introduced to the world of influencing after meeting party girl Carly. Mood is honestly an incredible look at mental health, sex work, drinking culture, and money struggles. In this episode, Nicole talks about the stories she heard from sex workers when she was researching the show, as well as her own journey with mental health and antidepressants. Nicole also shares some amazing tips for stepping into your power when pursuing your dreams or pitching your ideas, whether they're creative or business ones, which I know so many of you will love. This is an incredibly open and honest conversation. So honest, in fact, there's some huge plot spoilers if you haven't watched Mood yet. But there is so much I'm going to take away from this chat, and I just know you will too. Crowns at the ready. Let's rain. Babe, how are you? I am well. I am well today. I am... (laughs) Just enjoying the ride, enjoying yeah. everybody seeing mood. It's out. Yeah, how odd does it feel that it's finally out in the world after working on it for so long, right? How long did you work on the project for? So it was a play first. So it was mm-hmm. called Super Ho First. And I kind of had this idea and I wrote it and then it had like a reading, a sharing, then it had a full production. And at the same time I was talking to television companies. So if I factor all of that in, I actually think it's about four years from like doing the play to then having it come out. So I've been like living with this character for four plus years. Yeah. Yeah. That's a long time to be living with Sasha for. (laughs) Yeah, because she's, um, she's a hoot. She is, you know, she's a little sassy, a little, she's got a little bit of an attitude problem you could say but she is deeply vulnerable and I feel really protective of her and um Mm. she was sort of based on people I knew growing up so yeah that's why I kind of care about her and I go you know I want her to have a good life so it's nice that now the world can kind of enjoy her and and I think people are connecting with her a lot you know Mm. I think there's a little bit of Sasha in so many people because it touches on so much stuff even if it's just like from the moment of the drinking culture when she wakes up in the morning and the very first episode and she's like what did I do last night and I think even on that level everyone can relate the beer to that. fear we've all the had fear. the beer fear the anxiety and like maybe you can convince yourself that maybe accidentally you set your boyfriend's garden on fire but she actually did it so yes Yes, yes, she she really did. And, you know, we kind of figure out across the series, like, why she did it. Um, mm-hmm. 
whether it, I mean, it, I would say it's justified. I don't think you should ever set somebody's house on fire, but you know, in a way it is justified. She's definitely yeah. got um, her reasons and she's running away from something. She's got this sort of, you know, this deep trauma that we're kind of looking at and, and I'm, I'm picking across the show. So mm. it's important despite the carnage and the chaos that you kind of find Sasha in at the beginning of the series. Oh my God, totally. What did you want to do and create with Sasha? What did you want her to speak to and speak of, would you say, when you were forming her initially? Mm. Well, definitely one being, I felt like we didn't have a character like her on our screens. So I felt, I feel like we talk a lot about like messy women or like, you know, kind of like mm. TV's ready, but I hadn't, you know, she's genuinely messy. And also she doesn't have a fallback. She can't like call bank of mum and dad and be like, oh, actually I've, I've got into shit, like come and protect and look after me. She, she has no safety net. And I feel like, especially when you live in a big city or you live in London, like there are a lot of, not even just women, but like younger people really struggling and trying to figure it out. And that's who I was talking to. Those people that, you know, have this huge ambition, but they, you know, maybe they lack self-esteem. And, and I wanted, and even just looking at the Instagram culture and social media and being able to see the person you like, want to be when you you look at mm-hmm. sort of the Instagram live and then you're like okay well this is who I really am and it's this kind of constant constant like conflict or confusion within yourself of like who you think you should be who you are who and and just like getting underneath that facade and that's where I was like shown this website where these basically creepy ass men are showing women online they're sort of honey trapping them right and saying I'm a rich sheikh come to Dubai or somewhere and I will pay you five grand you have to do xyz and then these women were agreeing to it because they were like all right that's a lot of money I'm gonna do it and then they put them up on the website and they shamed them they just said this person's not really a model this person's not really a singer they're actually a sex worker and some of them were sex workers and some of them were just like destitute kind of women like women who didn't have any money and was like right that's a lot of money for a night of kind of for a free holiday um Mm. so it was those people as well I was just like I haven't seen anybody talking about that kind of genuine desperation where you might do things that that go against your morals Mm. it's it's so that kind of like fight or flight mode that she's constantly in and she's always having to like problem herself away through her entire life and the script itself is just so amazing because it's just like the nuances in all of the discussions are just absolutely incredible from sex work to mental health to sexual abuse to family dynamics to race to gender to identity everything in between it's just I honestly don't know how you've actually done it it's like a piece of actual genius it's just so great and literally all of my friends have literally like, you need to watch this show and every time everyone comes back and like oh my god and what's so great about it is everyone takes something different away from it yeah definitely and you can sort of reflect on different things and question your approach and the way you might judge people in certain situations as well and I think the way that you really dealt with sex work and especially this version of OnlyFans that appears in Mood is so incredible and it's so interesting and it's a side of that kind of industry which we don't really necessarily see or talk about and you did so much research into it didn't you to and you interviewed loads of people right what kind of stories really stuck from you from that process well I mean everyone I spoke to had like one or two insane stories like stuck in their back Mm. pocket that was you know people were quite willing to talk to me because they often were doing it in secret. So it's like they didn't have, it's like, you know, I was like a confidant they could sort of tell these things to. Um, One story that really stuck out to me was this um, 18 year old who I met that basically her, her friend had been kind of kicked out and of home. And she was sort of being, she was still at college. She was sort of being like fostered by a family friend or something. And she had discovered this website you know seeking arrangement it's this website where you can kind of mutually go on it and and i was on there actually i had a profile on there when i was researching the show so i was getting all of these crazy messages from guys too and um 
it's kind of supposed to be, you know, an adult website where rich men or rich women can find somebody to kind of pair up with and you can strike a, a deal, I guess, of like what you get. You know, you might get £700 a month to do X or, you know, mm. just go for dinner. Just And, you know, people are quite explicit with what they want. But this 18-year-old girl had um, had an account on there and then she basically told three of her friends at college and then they were all on Seeking Arrangement and they all had these sugar daddies, but they were like 17, 18. And so the girl I met had sort of found it through her friend and they were like raking in cash at college, like none of their parents knew. And I had said to this girl, like, you know, what did you, what did you buy with the first time, like the first paycheck, right? Mm. And she said, she was like, girl, I bought weave. I bought weave. I just, I bought a weave. And I just thought, you are having sex with a man for weave. Like that's, it was really funny, actually. That's because, you know, you're looking on, these girls are looking on social media and they're going, they're looking at like celebs who have these amazing hair extensions and weave, the Cartier, the bags, the this, and that's what they're identifying with. And I don't remember being 18. And obviously I didn't have Instagram at the time. And seeing things like that and feeling that real pressure of like material wealth you know I don't remember Mm. feeling like I had to be rich at 18 and have everything figured out to show everybody I was rich so really strange I know she was also paid with hair straighteners one time the guy couldn't pay and she was like, well, what do you have? And he had his girlfriend's hair straighteners and he gave her a pair of GHDs. <coughs> How bad is that? I was conflicted with meeting her because she seemed fine, you know, but I couldn't mm. help but think, yeah, but you're 18, your parents don't know. So yeah, so I, I had a lot of things that um, were quite shocking, really. Mm. What did you see when you set up your own profile on it? What kind of mm. like messages and stuff are you getting? Because that must have been wild to like actually step yourself into that world. It was basically just like doing any kind of business transaction. Mm. Um, there was a guy on there who wanted to pay £700 for two blowjobs a month. That's what he was after. And... <laughs> I was like, oh, like what? Basically, you know, going, so why, why wouldn't you just, I don't know, like have a partner or just like meet a woman somewhere or whatever? Mm. And his whole thinking was like, I don't want to, because also it's not tech, like they don't see it because it's a sort of sugar daddy site, right? You're not like paying for, you know, you're not going to like a brothel. They think it's, you know, Mm -hmm. it's sort of classier in a way, right? So, he was like, oh, I don't want to basically pay somebody who could be being trafficked or could be, he was like, I want to find a woman to help her essentially. And then she can pay her rent. I can get what I need, but I don't have to have any kind of emotional connection. We'll just meet in a hotel. That is all I want. I don't really want a conversation. I just essentially want head. (laughs) That is it. And I, I just, I mean, I sort of understand it in one way, but I mean, the Mm. sort of level of like privilege and just entitlement of, you know, I'm like, I'm trying to do it to help somebody out. I thought, hmm, we could just give somebody 700 pounds, couldn't you? But it's interesting because what you're saying is when you're talking to these people is you're, you're kind of like torn between sometimes laughing about it and then also seeing the darker side of it as well. And also seeing their actions and kind of understanding why they might do it, but then also questioning as well. And that's kind of the approach that Mood takes, doesn't it? Because it doesn't actually ever put a line of judgment on anyone. And it's all about the sort of gray areas of like from things from consent to sex work and everything else. And especially one of the gray areas you explore very powerfully is around sexual abuse and the victims of sexual abuse as well. When you decided to tackle that topic, how did you go about exploring it? And what did you want to say in your discussions around it? Well, yeah, that was a, it was a really tricky thing to kind of look into. And I think what the, um, what, one of the things that really resonated with, with, with me was thinking about like when I was at school, when I was mm. at secondary school and the kind of internalized 
shaming. I went to an all girls school and there were girls there that were having sex that were, you know, 14 or so with these 20 year olds, 19 year olds. And I remember everybody thinking it was cool when I was in school and being like, this person's got an older boyfriend. Oh my God, it's yeah. amazing. And you thought that, you just thought the whole situation was really, really cool. And obviously when I got older and I looked back, I was like, oh, they were legit pedos. And um, mm. this is a really sort of gray area that's always looked at. I kind of leaned on sort of stuff of sort of like looking at the experiences of like my own school life, actually, mm. of how, and thinking how likely those women, like when they're older, will look back and think like, oh, actually, that's not how I had framed that in my head. I wasn't the person in control. And, and even myself, like definitely like always, you know, hit on or spoke to by a lot of older boys. And again, just thought that was really normal. So that's where I kind of wanted to shine a light on that because I do really think it's a gray area where we're not sort of going, oh, because this guy's 19 or 20 and the girl's like 14. Like it's not out and out called like rape. It's just not, it's, it's, it's not kind of looked at. And I've had so many messages since about it of people looking back and thinking, oh my God, that was a totally different situation where I didn't really feel like I was in control or looking back, how could I have consented? I was 14, like, mm. of course I couldn't. And it, it is illegal and, and people don't give it that really firm line. Um, mm. And the wording around it is not even the same. Um, and then I read books on it. Um, I spoke to different people. I, I spoke to a friend of mine who works in a school as a clinical psychologist who, um, sees it kind of daily actually where because porn is everywhere as well mm -hmm. um, and it's so easily accessible in schools a lot of things have become really normalized in schools where you know she's telling me she's doing talks where you're having to say like let people know like if you're sharing images of each other well actually that's child porn like you can't be sharing mm. you know you can't take a nude at 13 and 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 have and sh send it to a, a boy in your school and then have them share it around that's actually that's illegal and that's child porn and that boy could be done for child porn so it's like kids don't even have the these teenagers kids don't have the bandwidth for actually what they're experiencing living because they're they're so close to adulthood in a way you were never exposed as much when you didn't have the internet mm. and you didn't have social media to kind of look at somebody in their 20s and think oh i'm like that like like resonating with people that are a lot older than you and and the experiences they're going through so it's such a thorny thorny issue and it it was so important to me about this character on this journey unpicking something that she knows she did and mm. shames herself for and then sort of reframing it and thinking, hang on a minute. And, and having helped to reframe it, actually, that she's not, you know, she's totally slut-shamed by her boyfriend and, and sees herself as like a hoe and she did something when she was younger. But changing the narrative, like, for herself and thinking that's not actually, she's not the one at fault. And I think that's what she's sort of learning across. Mm. It's so interesting what you say about being because we were the, literally the same age so when we grew up I guess we didn't have social media until we had like MySpace at the age of like 17 yeah. and it was never that level of like heavy influence the culture where it was like got my clutch and it's Gucci and it looks stunning it was like it was more like you'd upload a picture from like your night out at the club and you'd probably be song. a bit sweaty and no one you'd would care with the song yeah <laughs> do you remember what your MySpace song was do you know what? I actually don't. I know I was one of those people that changed it like daily though. I love yeah, yeah, yeah. so much. I was changing it like whatever my mood was, I was changing that MySpace song. But that was but that was all you had. You did. You had your photo from the night out. And also, I mean, it just wasn't also easy to connect through to other people's pages, how like you have the explore page on Instagram, mm. which is hell. It really is hell, yeah. I think, that page. Um because you can just, it's just like you can click on one page and it takes you somewhere completely different. Um, but we didn't. We had MySpace, then Facebook. 
Yeah. And that's when you used to like go out and put up a whole album of photos. Do you remember yes. just one night out? Yes. And you'll be like, here's 200 photos. A night out in Nottingham Oceana, Monday, 26th of April. You're literally like, what? Why would you do that? <laughs> but people would sit and look. They would yeah, go they through would. your 200 photos and they would, just... they would comment. Bless yeah. themselves. <laughs> like, and do you know what? You Thinking about those photos as well, it's funny you say like the photo album, like, they would have been like heinous photos of yourselves. Like you weren't oh. like concerned in the same way of like, like you might have your, your one nice photo, but imagine somebody on Instagram putting up 200 photos. They'd all be filtered. <laughs> they'd all be amazing. Like everything would be tagged. It would be, it's like a promotional sort of 200. Yeah. Whereas there was something nice about the messiness that we had in a way that I, I think you don't have the same, we didn't have the same pressure that these sort of 12, 13 year olds are having now. No, it's like a whole other level of pressure. And I think also in mood, the pressure comes out in the way that you discuss mental health as well and the effects that pressure has on all of the characters' mental health and their well-being and how they define themselves as well. And, you know, Sasha has panic attacks and you can see some of the other characters unraveling as well. And again, it is a very nuanced conversation around mental health. It's not, it's a very kind of like, ugly and at slightly times awkward look at it it's it's it, there's no varnish to it at all at any point was that something very important to you to approach mental health in kind of a new way on screen as well and how did you want to kind of reflect your own journey with your own mental health as well through it yeah so definitely one of the thing key things for me in is again I'm always talking about like the language around stuff and I think that sometimes you know, especially somebody like Sasha, she is not, she doesn't have diagnosed anxiety. She's not like, mm. you know, on medication or anything. She is experiencing panic attacks and, and, and is anxious, but she doesn't even have the language around it. So she just experiences panic attacks and then just goes on about her day. Really, mm. She doesn't. And that's something that I feel like um, is a truism of, of people that kind of find themselves until maybe they, they end up going to a doctor and like having themselves diagnosed. And I think a lot of the time we might see people that are at that point where they've been diagnosed. So they kind of know what's going on. Whereas I think she's yeah. just like smoking weed and then getting a bit anxious or smoking weed to then think that will help with this feeling she's feeling. She's like, well, oh, just smoke weed, make it go away and, and it will stop. Um, so I wanted to show somebody like that who's, kind of journeying and, and I never really um like she doesn't get diagnosed by the end of it she isn't um somebody who like by the end of the series is like oh I, I have anxiety or I'm experiencing anxiety um and that was purposeful because I think you know if we were to go on and say a series two or something it's like that's something she has to figure out she's not there in her journey mm. in her mental health journey like she she's not there yet um and then the other character of Salim who um, is on medication and in terms of my own mental health journey I've definitely experienced a lot of anxiety like on and off periods mm. of my life where you know where I especially when I was trying to make it as an actress writer and pay my bills that's where a deep anxiety would always come from where it was like okay I've got an audition but I've got a shift as a hostess so I used to always that's how I sort of bread and butter, taught a little bit, hostessed at, you know, different restaurants, events, everything. I hostessed everywhere, typical actor, like doing promotions. And it would always be, you'd book a really good gig that would really pay your rent. And then I'd get this audition in that could not be moved, could not for love nor money be moved. And then I'd have to be like, right, well, I'm gonna get fired. If I take this audition, I'm gonna get fired. There's no guarantee that I'll get the audition. Mm. And more often not than not, I didn't get the audition and then I didn't have a job. And then I was like, great. So now, now I'm sort of stuck going, how am I going to like pay my bills? And I was like, I was just in this loop, this real cyclical thing. And that really caused me a lot of pressure, a lot of, a lot of, and in a similar way to Sasha, actually, in terms of like feeling really anxious and, and not knowing what to do about it. And I remember going to a doctor, going to the GP and being like, I feel really anxious. I feel really, um, 
just unsettled. I was like, feel like unsettled, you know, like I can't sleep very well, I'm unsettled. And this GP just gave me antidepressants, just gave them to me and was like, that that will help. And like that, that was literally it. And there was no like- mm, That was the only conversation. Unpick- that was literally it. It was just like, yep, take these antidepressants. And obviously I, I, I picked them up and it said on the box, causes anxiety on the, on the box. And I was like, hmm. And already being anxious at the time, I was like, well, that doesn't, mm. doesn't sound good. Um, and instead what I did was eat better. I started like really working out, like just to really clear my head and um, just really honing in and focusing on like what I wanted to do. And so I never actually took the medication and um, that did work for me. I know it, I know friends who are on medication that works for them, but actually it was more like my circumstances were causing me anxiety. You know, it wasn't mm. necessarily that, um, and, and I think that is the way for a lot of people actually. And um, I sort of had to reframe how I was seeing everything. And you know, when you fall into a negative space and everything was shit at that time, just like everything was shit. Like where I was renting was shit. I had no money. I was like, if, if I never make it, like what am I, I was literally like, what am I gonna do with my life? If I don't mm. make it in kind of entertainment, I was like, what am I actually gonna do, you know? Um, and that, that was a source of deep anxiety because to be honest, I've been fired from a lot of jobs um, as well. <laughs> Essentially, if I wanna be my own boss, then what am I gonna do? Because if you're an actor, you are sat by the phone, right? Until you're sort of a megastar, um, you, you aren't really in control of your own story and your own destiny. And I was kind of writing forever. Like I was always writing alongside acting but I wasn't sending my scripts anywhere. I wasn't proactively like, I'm a writer, I'm gonna make money as a writer. It was very much acting focused. And when that shifted in me, where I was like, no, I'm actually gonna go and like create my own stuff and be my own boss and like, you know, know what I'm doing for a few months at a time, like beyond. And then that would, that just massively, even that just totally reduced my anxiety of the, you know, never knowing what, what I was going to do the, the week after whenever. Um, and that kind of changed everything for me, really, like really focusing on writing and, and totally changed my life, I would say. Um, mm. And made me feel really empowered. And, and I was like, I, I was always meant to write. That's how I genuinely feel. And um, I enjoy writing so much. Like I really do like sitting down to write. And, and I missed it when I was filming. Um, so even on my weekends, I would write and people were like, oh, did you have a nice week, weekend off? You'd be you like, know, I haven't actually. stopped actually, babes. <laughs> I know. I'm one of those annoying people. I was like, well, I, I like, started writing a novel just for fun. Cause I thought that was fun. <laughs> so I'm a bit of a nerd like that. I am a bit of a nerd in, I just, I just really do enjoy it. Like, there's no, I'm just like, I could just like talk about it all day long, but I do just really like sitting by myself in a room and writing like, writing whatever comes to my mind i think it's um so enjoyable clearly i found my passion josh that's that's what it is rain and kills are both about empowering you to feel like your best self and kills's new midnight recovery omega rich cloud cream does exactly that it's rich in omegas three and six which help replenish and rejuvenate skin and with it only taking seven nights to younger looking skin, I'll race you to that nearest Kills store, or you can shop on kills.co.uk. I thought that thing, the, the thing about the show where you talk about sort of discuss money woes is actually really interesting because there's so many people I know, and I'm one of these people who have gone through so many different money woes in my like 20s, early 30s, where people will probably be like, oh my God, you've really like got to yourself into a good place. I'm like, I haven't paid my tax bill. Or like, yeah. or you're yeah. literally there sat thinking like, I actually am like only like one job away from like paying my mortgage or not being able to like, afford certain things and then be like, oh, just pop that on the credit card and then the credit card racks up and then you're in this other situation that's just, and it is a massive cycle and it is something we don't necessarily talk about even with our friends, right? We wouldn't be like, oh yeah, I'm actually really skinned at the moment. You'd be like, oh no, it's all totally fine. Like, yeah. Well, do you know what me and my friends do? Like we actively do, you you know? Yeah, we really do. And um, 
my friends knew I was broke for years. Like they really, like bless their souls. They were like, I feel like they were really banking on me um, making money one day because now they're really <laughs> returning all those drinks. Like they're coming for those drinks and going, no, remember when you were broke, Nicole, and we like paid for dinner. Um, so, you know, it's nice. We can, like, we're all kind of in a good space, like me and my besties. And um, it's, it's, it's nice. They were, but I think we talk a lot about, in my group of friends, like generational wealth and like how you, how you acquire it, how you kind of, talk about money, talk about buying houses. And, and you're right, I think a lot of people don't. And um, mm. talking about money can be a bit like, ew, like, you know, you don't just feel like to how much money you've got. Like it, it's sort of um, not the done thing. I think it's quite a Britishness of like, not really like airing your laundry, like your finances. Literally, it's, it's a real, in it's an interesting, discussion that happens amongst so many of the people I know as well who were just like oh yeah I can't talk about that like it really freaks me out because it's just not having an understanding of it and I think if you've really like struggled at different points especially like living in London where like you know you're literally living hand to mouth all the time you can't ever get out of your head that you were that struggling person at the beginning right mm -hmm. do you feel like you're out mm -hmm. here doing it for the girl that struggled at the beginning. Oh my God, for the poor little girl that lives inside me, yes. Um, it's, it's, it's a reframing again for me in terms of, I had, I was in the recording studio the other day um, with a producer and he was talking about the night before he had gone to a party and he was like, there was loads of free drink and like canapes and I just like stuffed my face and, <laughs> He's, he's a really, he's doing really well as a producer, right? And I said, but you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to go to a party and like get all the free drink and all the free food because you're so excited. I said, you could buy drinks now at the bar. Like you, you can buy food, you know? And we were just laughing about it because we were like, but it's, there's something, he's, he's from up North as well. And I, I'm half Northern. So I've got a real affinity of the North. And um, we were just laughing because we were like, it never kind of leaves you when you've like mm. been broke or you've been poor, like you, you're sort of like, oh, free drinks. But actually like, yeah, you could, you could buy a drink now. It's not, it's not the same yeah. feeling. Um, so I think it's really important. I care so much about like the working class, like, cause I'm working class, like knowing more about money and what you can do. And I lived on such a little bit of money for so long that, um, but I still had a bloody good time. Like, yeah, I was really exactly, savvy. you still make it happen. Yeah, you do. And that's one thing I cared about in the show that like, you know, Sasha goes to the Dole office and there's this kind of number. And I was like, you know what? You kind of don't know what you don't know. So even if you're really like, you don't have much money, um, you're still like happy. You're still like enjoying the environment you're in a lot of the time because like, that's just, that's your existence. Like, it's not like everyone's sat around all the time. Everything's bleak being like, oh, it's all shit. Like, yes, it can be that. But other times there are like periods of just like real, real joy, you know? Um, mm. And I had a lot of joy when I didn't have money. You don't have to deal with an accountant then. You don't have to worry about like paying taxes. There were, you know, years where I didn't have to pay taxes because I didn't earn enough money. Mm. So <laughs> that, was, that was good because I didn't have to um, <laughs> fill in, you know, really dig into that. So there was, there's a positive to be found everywhere. <laughs> I love that. That's the way I'm going to look at it from now on when I don't want to talk about it. And it must have taken so much work to actually get this commissioned. And I'm so intrigued about the process of how you actually managed to do this. Because I bet it, like you were saying, like you were like really stepping into your power as a writer by doing this and working mm. on these projects. So how did you actually get in that office and get it over the line? Gosh, I mean... It was, yeah, it was, it was hard, um, but maybe, I hear it's harder actually. So for me, I found it hard, mm. but um, essentially I had a, I have a writing agent who, um, after I wrote the play, and like I said, I, I always had written for fun. So I had this body of work that was never really seen um, mm. and TV scripts, like sort of, you know, sort of, um, sort of like, like scripts that were spec scripts really is what I had. And um, it meant that when I got a writing agent, she had the play Super Ho, and she also had these other 
scripts that I'd written that she could say, look, she had a drama that she wrote and she's got a comedy mm. that she's written as well. So she's done it all. Companies, <laughs> she's done it all and for free. Oh. Um, just for fun, <laughs> the weirdo. Um, so they, your agent will send that out. You know, they'll send it to TV, production companies, film companies, and they will go, look, I've just signed this writer. Who wants to meet her? See if you respond to her work. And, and a lot of people did. So I was going on generals and talking to people and people were really interested in the play and saying, have you thought about turning it into a TV series? And I'll be honest, I hadn't. Um, at the time, I really hadn't because um, I had just written it as a play, again, mm. just for a sharing. Um, so when they said it, obviously I wasn't going to talk myself out of a job. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like for a TV show, definitely. Um, and from that, I then gave the project to the production company currently that then did make Superho. And in the meantime, um, the Royal Court Theatre picked up Superho to be a full production. So I had this like idea in the works for TV. It was then going to go to the Royal Court and the production company is essentially your the person who's going around saying to everybody like who wants to make it you know in the most sort of basic way possible but like who wants to make this tv show i've got the rights to this play and we gave it to the bbc and immediately they were like yep yeah, come in and meet um the commissioners there and i didn't really know what to expect actually from the meeting and mm. i just really got on with the two women I met there and they said okay well we'll commission a script like one script for a first episode which again I was kind of like great okay that's like great <laughs> um not really thinking too much like I was excited but like you know I don't think I knew how big it was in, in a way I'm sort of mm. happy about that because um I, I just don't feel a pressure then when I'm just like not overthinking it um so obviously I called my agent my agent was like what that's amazing like you've got um a, a script <laughs> this commission. is insane like, this, this is insane this means it could be a tv show uh like you're one step closer and then I I did the play actually at the Royal Court and everybody from the BBC came down and and really loved the play then they got to see me act in the play so I think they were more excited um in terms of okay, this, this is who the lead actress would be. Because they'd never actually seen me act at that point. Um, and then I wrote the script after the play. And then the BBC get it and, and they, they then decide if they want to make a series or not based on how much they like your first episode. And that's when I felt pressure, actually, when mm. I had the script and I had to like go into the office. And I think there were like seven or eight people there and I had the first episode, I had kind of the series outline of like, this is what I would do. And you have to go in and pitch it essentially. And you have to be like, I'd do this and I'd do this with it. And I would write this and um, explaining like why it needs to be on the BBC to the BBC going, you must take it. It's amazing. It'll be this, it'll be that. Um, and really doing your best like Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do your best own PR. <laughs> like, honestly, in my head, I was just like, you got this, you got this. Um, and I, yeah, I can, I sort of perform, I think, when I pitch. Like, I don't, I'm like an elevated version of myself. Because if I wasn't, mm. I would just be an absolute nervous wreck. Um, and I think that's something I talk about a lot, actually, which is like, it. I get nervous. I just like fight through the nerves. I just like, I just totally ignore them. I'm just like, whatever. I'm just like gonna be be somebody else, be like jazzy, jazzy Nicole for the day. Um, and it worked, fortunately. Um, I sort of expected them to say then and there in the meeting and they didn't, they were just kind of like, you know, thanks, great. And I <laughs> Thanks for popping by. <laughs> yeah, literally it was that. And I, I remember walking out there with um, the woman Marjorie who I've exec produced Mood with. And we were a bit like, I think, that did go well, didn't it? That did, like, we were like, that, that has gone well. Like, we, we think, yeah. And we were both really unsure. But then one of the BBC commissioners came out and was just like, amazing, like, great, isn't it? And, like, sort of said it, that was it. Like, it was going to be made. But equally, it wasn't, like, official, official. So we still had to yeah. wait, like, three weeks, I think, for it to get, like, 
an official green light, which means like 100%, there's the commitment. So I had these few weeks of like knowing it then had gone well, but just not whether I was definitely, definitely making it. And those three weeks were pretty painful, I must say. So it must have been in that three weeks, it must have been very nerve wracking, not knowing is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And I think there comes a lot of self-belief with still feeling like it is going to happen and this is going to happen for you. And I think so many people face so many challenges in either starting their own business or becoming their own boss or like, you know, or commissioning or getting sent commissioned by the BBC, for example. But what advice would you give people about stepping into their own power and having self-belief? And what kind of advice would you give them to, in order to own themselves in a way? Oh, right. What did I do? That's what I'm, what advice would I give? I mean, I, I do feel like I can be pretty fearless in terms of, mm. like, for instance, in those three weeks, I, I had like job offers and things on the line where I could have written on somebody else's show, for instance. Now, if I'd have accepted that, that would have taken me six, seven months. And then if my show was then commissioned, I wouldn't be able to start my show for seven months, right? So I turned those things down thinking, right, well, at least I can kind of live and die on my own sword in the sense that I'm focusing on my goals and I'm like furthering myself rather than going and joining another writing room, writer's room. And I think to be able to do that, again, when you're, especially if you're not in a place where you're financially like, you know, the sort of solvent, as you will, um, then those are risky decisions to make. But I feel like you have to kind of be fearless and make those decisions and be able to live. Yeah, that, that's what it is essentially for me. It's like die, die on your own sword in terms of like you are in charge of your own destiny. So advice I would give to sort of have that self-belief is to one, really listen to your own voice and try and not like look left or right and be like, what is your vision? What do you actually really want to do with mm. your life actually? Because often you will get offers and things will come in and they can swerve you off a path for a long time, especially as a creative. And that's usually like, oh, you could go and do this tour around, I don't know, sort of Southwest or something. But you actually know you want to be in London making a play. People will go and do that because they're like, oh, but I could do that. But it's like, but you don't want to do that. So why have you taken that job? Mm. But I'm a fan of like, saying no even when the opportunity might seem like the right opportunity but I think you have to really um be quite fearless to make that because if it doesn't go the way you wanted it to you you still have to be able to live with that decision you made and so that's something I do a lot I'm just kind of I would just I spend a lot of time making lists right I'm a list person massively and I'm always re-looking at okay I wanted to do this I want to do this right is this the thing I want to do and I would look at what the steps are for me to get it so I would say that people really need to just hone in on what it is exactly they want to do and then go for it I'm a plan a type person I am not a plan b kind of human um I don't really like to think about not being able to achieve something I want to I Mm. I instead think about uh yeah, I don't, I really try not to think about anything else. I'm so like soul focused. Um, I can pivot if there's like, then, okay, it can't happen. And it's a definitive kind of, it can't, then I will then pivot. But then I'll convince myself that that's my plan A all along, because I'll be like, well, that was what was meant to happen. This is the new plan. Like I'll never think about kind of falling back on stuff. So, but it took me a while to get to that confidence. Um, because I think I had faced a lot of hardship and faced a lot of no's. And um, ultimately, ultimately, it's also about like learning what kind of person you are. Some people love to collaborate. Like, do you want to go and collaborate? Do you mm. want to go and work with other people? Or are you better in a room by yourself doing something or like running your business by yourself? Like, what do you need? Or like at this specific moment in time, what do you need? Like, definitely, I need to be collaborating with people like to get a TV show. Like, you really need to collaborate. But in the initial stages, it had to just be me and my laptop and my script and my vision. And then it was going to be a clear, you know, the TV show would have a clear narrative. It would make sense, all the rest of it. Um, Whereas some people to get a business started, they can't just maybe do it by themselves at first. They might they might need all these other components. Um, 
So it's also about figuring that out, I would say, in terms of like, what do you need? What do you want? How can you make it happen? Um, I'm very optimistic, I think, in, um, mm. and just pro like living, just like really believing in your dreams. And, and it doesn't really matter like where you come from or whether you've been really privileged or not. And like, everyone's gonna face different like adversities, but I just think everything is within your power. It's like how, how big you dare to dream. Do you know what I mean? Mm, 100%. I mean, you dream so big because when you actually break it down, it's like, I'm not just gonna make my own TV show. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna write my own TV show. I'm gonna star on my own TV show. <laughs> and then not only that, I'm then gonna record all the songs. <laughs> And I'm also going to exec produce them. I mean, yeah. babe, you've got to have a lot of faith in yourself to step in and do all of that stuff at once. Like, that is, it's, honestly, you, like, put everyone to shame. <laughs> like, how do you do it? Oh, God. Because I do think I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd about what I do. And, I, and it really, like, just turns me on. I get passionate for it. I'm like, I want to, I want to be doing this thing you know and i live sleep eat breathe it and i'm definitely trying to get a better balance of like mm. going a hundred percent and then like okay now the show's done i'm like oh like i'm sort of back in the world you know um maybe i can do that more and see if i can not but you know what for the first project i feel like i had to just had to dig in, you know, um, and obviously pandemia was happening. She was around, so I was sort of stuck in the house anyway. Miss Rona did you a favour in a way then, babe, didn't she? <laughs> well, you know, I don't like to say it because she has caught me twice, this Rona. Yeah. Um, so, you know, let's not speak bad on Rona in case she comes back round for me. <laughs> um, but it, it was handy, the pandemic, in terms of being stuck in the house and having to write. I mean, it's so strange now, isn't it? When you look back and you're just like, what on earth? Mm. What a strange, strange time. Like when Strange time, but also a time when we really had to face ourselves, mm. right? And then like reflect our identity and then who we are and what kind of person we are and what kind of person we want to be. And... I mean, Mood is very much a show that is about identity and shaping your identity and looking at your identity and literally facing your younger self. Sasha has to face her younger self in so many ways. For you, what do you think have been some really key turning points in establishing your identity? And especially, I, I think one of the most powerful parts of the show is when Sasha talks about her racial identity as well. And she really explores that and gets into it in a way and it's very powerful and it's very reflective on her as well. For you, what have been some turning points you coming to terms of your identity and discovering who you actually are? Mm, that's a really good question. I mean, I've, in terms of like race, I've always kind of like, I, both my family, I've got the sort of white side of my family, black side of my family, and I see them all. So, and I grew up in a really like multicultural kind of East London. So, for me, it was very normal to like just be mixed race. Like I didn't really ever think about, I didn't, just didn't really think about my race actually, genuinely. Um, it was only once I really left East London that I then went to a drama school that was predominantly white, where then I felt like, um, oh, I'm somebody else, you know? Um, I'm sort of felt quite, I did feel really othered there. And I felt like sometimes I tried to assimilate. Um, I felt like other people's notion of my identity sort of corrupted my identity in a way of like how they would like to label me. And I was like, oh, I don't see myself as this thing, but they see me as this thing. Um, mm. So that was interesting. So I think it was really into my sort of mid twenties that I kind of had shaken some of that off. I found drama school quite stressful in terms of just, um, and I know there's still so much talk about drama schools and how damaging they can be for black, mixed race, Asian students. Um, mm. And I've, I found it a really stressful time. Um, so yeah, it took me a minute to like shake that off essentially. Um, and, and once I had, um, I don't know, I just, I feel really confident in being like, I'm so proud of being working class. I'm so proud of 
my Jamaican heritage and like my grandma is like my absolute bestie, like love her dearly. Um, and she came when she was 19 to England, um, just on a bit of a whim came <laughs> um, and it's all worked out for her and my granddad, they're still together. And um, so I just, I feel very like in touch with those sides of my family and go to Jamaica and things like that. But one thing I do know about um, through sort of mixed race friends of mine and people I'd met that they don't quite have the same experience, right? Especially if you grow up in a household where you are maybe the only brown person there or um, you don't know the black side of your family or the Asian side of your family, depending on what your kind of um, heritages are. And that can be a real problem when you're growing up in a home and you feel like you're, you're not seen and you're sort of seen as the same as everybody else, but you're, mm. you might be mixed race and everybody else is white. So how can you be the same and your experiences in the world are not the same? Um, and that is what I wanted to explore with Sasha in that it's not even really spoken about with her family, but the optics are there. And that's what you can't get away from with race, right? It's like, yeah, fine, even if you don't talk about it, but you can look, you see the opening you know, scene and it's like her parents, a white her little sister's white and she's the only brown person at home so I feel like on a really subconscious level like everybody's picked up on that even though she doesn't say to her mum at any point like she never says it to her mum they never discuss race in the show and yet without saying it it's already enough which shows you how much it actually like just massively impacts our lives um everywhere we go it's so true and you bring it so powerfully to the screen as well and you know what babes you're amazing, and I just need a second season. Is it going to happen? <laughs> well, I mean, I just couldn't even say at this point. Do you know what? I'm in, like, break mode. I'm in party mode, as you know. Um, and that's what <laughs> I'm, like, trying to just be out and about and, like, just have a bit of time off. Um, there's definitely material for a season two, that much I know. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, I think we'll see what happens with Sasha. Well, I'm crossing everything for you, babe, because I need it back already. And before you go, I've just got one question for you, which we ask every single guest on the podcast. And that is, in the reign of your life, what's the one rule you'll always live by? Staying true to myself. Mm-hmm. That's that's yes. definitely the rule. Like always staying true to your morals, to what you believe in, and kind of yeah, that I feel like that will always serve you very well when you, you stay very aligned and, and true to yourself. Yeah. Well, you are doing that. You're living, breathing example of that. And thank, thank you. you so much for joining me. I've literally loved talking to thank you. Thank you, babe. Appreciate that. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining me for another amazing episode of Rain. I really hope you found something to take away from this episode. And if you have, let me know. You can always get me on socials at Josh Smith Hosts. I love to hear from you. And as always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like, rate, subscribe, or follow wherever you get your podcast from. And more importantly, please share this with someone you think needs to hear it. Let's get those convos going and I'll see you next time. <laughs>